Hi, welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is Christy Garland, a producer and director whose documentary What Wallah Wants follows a young woman as she trains to join the Palestinian security forces over six years. Named as one of TIFF's Canada's Top Ten, it begins a theatrical run at the Lightbox in Toronto on March 1st, but before that, it screens at the Hot Docs Ted Rogers Cinema here this Wednesday, February 20th, which, if you're listening to this on the day I release it, is tomorrow. Christy picked Election, Alexander Payne's 1999 comedy starring Matthew Broderick as an Omaha social studies teacher obsessed with derailing the campaign of his high school student election frontrunner, bright-eyed, cupcake-toting Tracy Flick, played by the phenomenal Reese Witherspoon. It's a movie about petty people doing spiteful things to crush the dreams of their rivals, so of course it's a metaphor for America— and Payne, hot off his audacious first feature, Citizen Ruth, rips into it with everything he's got, working with his regular collaborator Jim Taylor to turn Tom Parada's acidic novel into a finely calibrated farce of violent insecurity. Like I said, America. This is someone else's movie. This is, some, this is one of these films that it's shockingly, a lot of people don't, and that's one of the reasons why I like it. Yeah. Because it... Um, uh, has the cover art of like you think it's a high school movie you think it's like 10 things I hate about you or or, or whatever or, or maybe that's not the best reference but just any you know it, that it's geared for teenagers it sort of looks like that oh it was definitely marketed that way you know Reese Witherspoon you liked her in Cruel Intentions yeah and then and then it's actually so different you know when you actually watch it it's way it's got way more depth yeah. And complexity. And the really the only thing that gives away the period, the fact that it isn't a contemporary film, is that I mean nobody has cell phones and, and or nobody has an iPhone and Reese Witherspoon looks like uh she looks like Anguri Rice. I'm probably mispronouncing her Who's name. Who's that? She is this young Australian actress. She was in a movie called These Final Hours hmm. and then she played Ryan Gosling's daughter in The Nice Guys and she just starred in a movie called Every Day that was shot here last year. Wow. Uh opened in no, two years ago now. It opened last year at Valentine's Day, so it's been a while. Um, but she's she's a really interesting, fascinating actor who looks like a baby Reese Witherspoon who looks like Tracy Flick. It's really weird. Uh, it's it's one of those Helen Hunt, Lily Sebesky things, hmm. like a like a cloning experiment that no one told us about. Oh, interesting. Uh, but it was really jarring watching Election this time and going, oh no, your brain is replacing. Her. Oh, uh, and she plays Betty Brant in the new Spider-Man movies. So oh, really? Yeah, she's everywhere. Um, but she looks just like, specifically just like Reese Witherspoon in Election. Huh. Uh, and Tracy Flick is different from all the other Reese Witherspoon characters because of that thing she's doing with her jaw. It's it's yeah. different. It's disturbing. Yeah, she's masterful in that. Yeah, she is. I mean, but all of them. Matthew Broderick is it's so incredibly fun to watch. And it's one of those films that... Um, uh, I was watching, I was watching, I rewatched it again for, uh, for this yeah. and I have seen it, you know, uh, so many times. I had to be honest because the first thing I thought of is, okay, what are the films that inspired me? And I thought, well, uh, Rosetta is a big one for me in terms of like how it influences me and Brasson. And then I thought, okay, who am I kidding? <laughs> to be honest with you, I know I've seen Election 30 times. It's wonderful though. It's there. And weirdly enough, it makes sense. Ooh. It's, it's a film about political realities that's just dressed up as a comedy and it never goes it's just always relevant it's even more relevant now i mean it was made in 1999 which is a year after the lewinsky clinton lewinsky lewinsky thing which Mm -hmm. you can feel um hints of in the film it's a really good film to discuss and i hadn't intended this because i just chose it because it's my go-to i mean it, it is one something i've seen and i think you know i've bored enough people and i thought well you're a captive audience and you're, <laughs> you're actually volunteering to be stuck listening to me talk about it but it is uh i never really realized that it's actually an interesting film to talk about post like in the me too era oh yeah in the i mean in the me too era in the post hillary clinton election campaign era as well where you saw all of america reject a woman who wanted it too much, yeah. That, I mean, which is Tracy Flick's fatal flaw, I think. I, yeah. I think the difference between Hillary Clinton and Tracy Flick is that Tracy doesn't know why she wants things. She just wants them. Yeah. 
this is the, the brilliance of the film and the way the characters are built and written is that you do get so many different dimensions of them. Like, why Tracy wants what she wants, it's, well, her mother has a lot to do with it. Sure, yeah. And it's sad. I mean, there are moments where you kind of feel genuine compassion for, I was, I think I'm going to say all of the characters. and Well, yeah, yeah, everybody, I think. You do feel something for everybody, including Tracy, and mine for her was when her mother says, well... Maybe you should have listened to me about the posters. Yeah. And here, here's the, you know, here's some pills. Take some sleeping pills. And you can just, right away, you flash forward, like, 20 years into Tracy Flick's life. And you know she's going to have a problem with pills. Yeah. That she's going to be this, you know, she's not going to know why she's pursuing anything. But because this sort of hole kind of comes maybe from what her mother expected of her. Yeah, it's either siblings or parents or, I mean, all the, it is, it's, just compassionate enough about the home lives of every character that we understand why they are who they are. It doesn't necessarily make us feel any better about what they're doing, which is, <laughs> I think, Payne's gift as yeah. a satirist. I, I'm, I blow hot and cold on him, or every other movie he makes, I don't is bad because and I don't like it because it's bad. I, I'm still trying to figure out how to frame that. For what reason? Is I it because sometimes know. you feel like he he's he kind of he he's unique in the sense that he doesn't choose sides. Like you rarely he he's, he takes equal that. aim at everyone. Yeah, I don't know that that's true though. I mean, they I think his first films are remarkably even-handed, like Citizen uh, Ruth. Citizen Ruth especially because that threads a needle mm. um, between well I mean, and settles for making everyone a caricature, which is the smart way to go through mm. it. I mean, they're all again they're all still feeling pain. Laura Dern's performance is amazing. Uh, at showing us that she is a grasping monster who is in incredible personal torment, just not about the question of the abortion. Right. Um, and the way he plays that film and and election too, uh, I think are they're both masterful uh, balancing acts mm-hmm. of, if not compassion, then at least understanding in Citizen Ruth, and then I think genuine compassion in Election. We feel for Tracy when she rips down the posters just as much as we feel for Mr. M when he throws the drink at the end. Like, everybody's justified in the moment, and right. that's how we understand the story. Uh, then there's other stuff where, um, I think about Schmidt is just really, I don't think it likes anyone. I don't think it has compassion for anyone, but it really draws a line between well-meaning uh, rural America and everybody else. Mm. There, There are no... Oh, really? Yeah. No one's okay. allowed to have any self-awareness. And uh, it's the glimmer of self-awareness that makes election so powerful to me. Well, the thing about self-awareness, though, in that is that they're all very self-deluded. They're all deluded. Mm. And, and it's sure. everyone... I think the only character who isn't as deluded as everybody else or hypocritical is Tammy Metzler, who's the most clear-eyed character. Sure. Yeah. I mean, she's my favorite, too. She's <laughs> the one who lies the least to herself and oh, to that's, others. Oh, that's a really good way of putting it, In too. the film. I mean, the the one thing that she says is, I wouldn't say I'm a lesbian. I, I'm attracted to the person. It's just that every person I'm attracted to is a woman. So she kind of has a bit of self, like, not quite... But she's a teenager as well. Yeah, give her five years and she'll, she'll have it. <laughs> the rest of the time, she knows exactly what she wants. And she's not afraid... She's not afraid to be caught with image photos of her girlfriend in the locker. Like, she's the bravest, most authentic character in the film Mm -hmm. but everybody else does have like what you say they do have this self-reflection or this um but it but it's diluted yeah oh i think everybody else is willing to run away from themselves right that way by pursuing something else they're they're all um they're all cowards mostly or and, they are self right or whatever they sees how they got there like yeah he understands where the cowardice comes from i mean Oh, Chris Klein's character is just such a, a sweet idiot that I don't think he's a coward, but I do think he has no backbone. Like, he's just willing to be pushed into whatever else. He's a happy, harmless... Yeah. He's just not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but the, the he's, he's arg- well, definitely the goodest. You know, like, he's... Yeah. Like, if there's... Uh, he's not noble, but he's decent. And he's the unwilling catalyst for so many of the important things that happen in the film. Mm. I mean, he's the... Without him... Um, and his football accident and being the Pepsi alternative to Coca-Cola, he kind of gets used in that regard. But the other fun thing is that because he's just so, he's, he's just lacks any kind of uh, cunning. He votes for Tracy. Yeah. 
because he, he's like, you don't vote for yourself, do you? And if it weren't for that one vote, then everything, I mean, he really does a lot hinges on, on him and he has absolutely no clue. Yeah. And it's amazing enough that the following year, George Bush, George W. Bush was elected president and he's uh, in certain, yeah, in certain points of, uh, in certain biographical treatments, that's who he is. He's just a harmless idiot who got pushed into something. I don't. I don't believe that. I think there's got to be some cunning in there. But yeah. Um, well, now compared to Trump, he seems like a genius. I mean, it's like, he, okay. Well, right? he he was a proper politician compared to Trump. Exactly. And here we are again uh, with election the movie as a blueprint for America yeah. all over again because Tracy winning prefigures the death of democracy really in yeah. a way that is completely different from what we ended up with but also exactly the same yeah in that someone who just wanted to be in charge got elected and that started her off on her path hmm. and here we are yeah um in, in it is a perfect time. it is is a perfect satire of politics right down to the fact that everybody prays that's true even the atheist yeah public uh, <laughs> demonstrations of the hypocrisy, like just all of that, it's it's very 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 clever. You know the thing is, I've 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 never read the book. Have you read the book? Um, yes, I did. I forever ago. I, I've read all of Parada's stuff uh, up until I think the last one of his I read was probably The Leftovers. Mm. And then it's just that I don't read fiction as much as I used to because the real world has gotten so much more bizarre. Sadly for us all, I mean that's it, and there's too much, so much to watch and so much to do yeah. that it's harder. And when I read now, I. It's good. It's like genuinely uh, calming. It's like okay, there's a light. There's paper here with picture, like words on the paper, and there's nothing else I can do if I can just focus on getting it to the end of this chapter. Yeah. Our attention spans are so di- different. I mean, with regard to watching films and television series and being able to watch one episode right after another. Oh and... no, it's just it's. Uh, I, I this past week I have watched the entirety of The Punisher season two and. A uh, Netflix show called Sex Education, and just because I had to review them, and mm. that was essentially, say, fifty minutes an episode. Uh, one was thirteen episodes, and one was eight episodes, and yeah. and all of that resulted in maybe seven hundred words of writing. But wow. it's like a full day of yeah. television. It's lu- twenty four hours of TV. You're lucky you don't have to feel guilty about it because it's your job. But I do. There's so <laughs> much else I could be doing. I guess I I guess it's part of my job too. I mean, you have to watch stuff, but. Yeah, it's impossible to watch it all, but you can, you know, you can kill yourself trying to be relevant, to yeah. be current. Uh, I can't look anywhere near all your DVDs because it's distracting. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's terrifying. It's a pretty good collection. Um, the f- I think the funny thing about those characters is that they mean different things to different people. Yeah, I think, or or maybe maybe the simpler way of saying it is that men and women view them differently. Possibly, mm. I it, you know occurred to me when I rewatched it that I hadn't read any reviews about the film when it first came out. Okay, had did you review it? You uh, I didn't actually. I think it was it, it was released in nineteen ninety nine. I was I was kind of a second tier uh, freelancer at the Star, so I was getting a lot of dog movies and horror films. Oh, okay. Um, it would have gone to Howell or McInnes, one of the one of the okay. main writers, and I wasn't a, I wasn't working as a, a a regular daily reviewer until Metro, and that would have been the fall of two thousand. So it's just in that little window where I wasn't covering. I saw it, but I wasn't reviewing most stuff until it came out on the video. Oh, I see. Okay. Uh, I did go back and look at a lot of the reviews, though, and yeah, it's. What did you What do you remember thinking when you first saw it? I was I was really impressed that. Um, at the technical facility more than anything else because Citizen Ruth is kind of a ragged film mm. and this was oh this is what he this is what he can do with a budget this is what he can yeah. do with, with scope with an image uh, I really liked it I was a little creeped out by the audience who hated Tracy mm. just despised her from the gut from the jump and I wonder if that isn't some sort of weird Toronto prejudice against overachievers in America. Yeah, tall poppy syndrome or something. Or kind of. We're, yeah, we're not good with people who tell you how good they are. Yeah. As a, as a culture. It, that's the that's that's fine and normal in the United States. But oh yeah. Here it's, it's how you it's succeed. Obnoxious. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that whole "I'm not here to make friends" thing. She predates reality television. Yeah. Which is fascinating to me to realize when this thing came out and and the context that it arrived in, because yeah. she does feel like someone who would absolutely murder everybody else literally kill them on survivor in order to win you think i think so i think if you push tracy flick into a corner she's going to chew her way out of it she takes care of herself but it is another thing to like interestingly say okay well if she were a guy 
running for student council president. If right. we did that old trick, if she was the jock, I how mean, much was... of it would be dislike? How much of it would be unlikable or, or just completely acceptable? Because she's ambitious and she wants she's am, she's ambitious and she needs to win an election in order to get where she's going. So yeah. she does what what it takes. I, think... I mean, in terms of cheating, I was thinking about this. Okay, what does she do that she rips the posters down? Right, but that's. Everything else, though, she plays by the rules. Yeah, she she is. Doesn't she play by the she's rules? She's willing to play by the rules, but as soon as she loses her temper, it all goes out the window. And I, I'm, I'm assuming that behavior would be equally reprehensible in a in a male character. But you're right; it would be seen as a go getter. Yeah, I think Tracy's written with a certain blankness that makes it more complex than. I don't think You're I right. dislike we her project. because she's well, a woman. But... I was reading the Roger Ebert. I've read a couple reviews because like, I went back and read some reviews in the last couple of days. I thought, well, what did everybody else say about this? Yeah. Well, Ebert and identified I'm... with her in a way that was really in that review. I remember being struck by that, and I went back and reread it to, to double check. Ebert. He Ebert? said he was Tracy Flynn. Oh, right. That's right. And he did. And, but he also said, or maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was a different reviewer. But somebody said she's sexually manipulative and she seduces him. Yeah, that's weird. That's a she definitely do not take from she, that film. and uh, that's not that's that was the second review that I read where I thought she definitely doesn't seduce whoever the other who's that brilliant actor who plays that who plays the teacher oh, oh the, the guy who's yeah. writing the novel I uh, want it to be Ron Livingston in my head but it's not but he's one of those I think he's a, like a Nebraska actor which is another thing we can get on to later which I love about Alexander Payne is how sure. he uses the local casting the local casting and they're all so brilliant um but that actor is so great. But he seduces her. He appeals yeah. to her loneliness. And there's no question. Uh, you you'd mentioned this is a film for the post Me Too era, and it absolutely is. There's no question that Tracy Flick's agency is not the issue. She is being manipulated. She's a teenager. Yeah, she's a child. And she's being manipulated by literally everyone, including the men who seduce her, which is just... Well, I mean, look it's, at, yeah. it's overt and it's creepy and it's so it's bizarre to look back and realize that people missed that. Well, she has a you know she's working her ass off to win an election. She's baking cupcakes. She's doing everything <laughs> her mother tells her to. She's playing by the rules for the most part. She rips the posters down because she gets frustrated. It's the equivalent of like throwing your coffee cup across the room if you're whatever if you get really frustrated that you're being beaten. She doesn't feel like it's she feels a great injustice that Paul Metzler is running sure. because he hasn't done the work. He hasn't done the homework he doesn't care she knows that she knows that he doesn't really even want it as much as she does so that's why i think she's easy to identify in that regard because it's like well she's working hard for it so i'm i'm, I'm defending tracy for a while because i oh, you know yeah. i thought for the longest time i couldn't I, I didn't she's unlikable she's annoying she's that person with her hand up all the time and you're like oh, you know what just dial it back a little bit <sighs> But um, it's it's funny that you're right. Like the Jim McAllister, for instance, completely throws the election. Like he, everybody around her is is manipulating her. Yeah, and yes. he is he is not the hero of this film either, uh, Mr. M. There's there like in as much as there isn't really a hero. I yeah. Think that... Well, in the traditional, the other thing is I think some people get thrown by this films because you you expect of a main character or protagonist is that they transform. Sure. And does anybody really transform in this film? No. I yeah. mean, that's the whole point. The system stays exactly the same. They right? all become it, more of exactly who they are. Yeah. It doesn't break them. It refines them, which yeah. is the more disturbing thing that, that the presidential campaign, you know, by extension, if you want to, if uh, who's, I don't think it was Ebert's review, but somebody else did say that the people running for president are the people who won in high school. That, that never changes, mm. that you're watching the formation of the future. Right. And there is nothing anyone can do to stop it that's really interesting that's her line about destiny right like right if it was if it was something else it wouldn't be called destiny <laughs> or I, I butchered that but no i get yeah no yeah. i remember though uh yeah i guess that's true um it doesn't make it any easier to accept but the that the system favors the keener that the system favors the uh the manipulator somebody who plays by the rules to the point where it is exhausting and outworks everybody else yeah just because she has the stamina to do it um someone else and because they're so laser focused on exactly they know exactly what they want and they don't they're not afraid to be seen trying either yeah it's the it's the clinton thing that i kept thinking about while she was running in 2016 was that she had and i i voted for her she was my pick absolutely i mean i'm dual citizen i can get away with that um (laughs) 
But it was really remarkable to come away from it with the sense that, no, she's probably not the best candidate, but she's going to make an amazing president because mm. she actually does understand the job and she knows what she's dealing with. And she came right up to the edge of calling Trump uh, a, a puppet. I mean, right. she actually did call him a puppet, but she uh, specified how he was a puppet and who he was a puppet. Came right up to the edge of landing that and then backed away because she still followed the rules. And she the rule is you his... don't attack, yeah. like you don't abandon your own dignity. And that was the one thing that might have changed it. Yeah. Because he lowered the like that's that's the thing that Tracy Flick doesn't embody. I'm I'm gonna screw up this argument too. The film knows that the rules following the rules only gets you so far and then you have to You have we're to, at yes. a point where they have to be disregarded in order for the correct result. That's Mr. M's because embodiment. Everybody is, else is breaking the rules. Yeah. So, so he is more willing to do that for everybody else, but Tracy doesn't and somehow still ends up being rewarded because the other person in the world who is naive enough to believe in the rules votes yeah. for her yeah <laughs> and that didn't happen in the real world that's why election feels like a comforting fantasy yeah. it's, it's funny it's really interesting i mean the other thing that i found interesting in the reviews that i read is that um that you know what didn't occur to me mm. as many times as i've seen the film but that jim mccallum like the one Somebody had it so that his main motivation for boosting Paul to run against Tracy was because he he was freaked out about his own sexual attraction to Tracy. Because he was he was so um uh you know, he he in a way felt vengeful for his friend being fired right. and losing his life for making a life mistake, right. which so is something is... a word now that's part of my vocabulary because it's so perfect, <laughs> a life mistake. And so he's and he's a, he's uncomfortable by his own attraction to Tracy, like when she whispers in his ear in the car, like harmonious and productive and right. that kind of thing. And then he watches the porn film, and then he gets this idea for a, more than one critic actually ha, count, factored that into what motivated him to run, uh, encourage Paul to run against her. Did you get that at all? I don't think so. I I thought it's more about his. Where he is in life? Yeah, it seems like it's his own frustration with not being able to have the things he thinks he deserves. And in that, it becomes a, like, a, there's definitely a white male privilege thing going on mm. um, in that he's rationalizing his friend's assault of a minor because, you know, I know him. It couldn't, how often do we hear that? It can't be like that. I don't, I know this person. That can't be that person. Right. Um he is he's leveraging he is doing everything he can to defeat Tracy but I don't know that it's because of his attraction to her no I didn't I mean, think that it, I think it has more to do with being annoyed by her um, nerve being yeah, annoyed by her ambition and being annoyed by um, how far he imagines she might go yeah he doesn't want her to succeed any more than he has or right. to, to outdistance him mm. and he knows that she will She's smarter than him already. Like, she's already yeah. out. Just, like, the, she's, I think, well, no, Tammy again. Back to Tammy. Tammy's the smartest person in the film, I think. Yeah. Or she will be. Yeah. Again, it's that, it's, that high, it's that awful thing about high school movies that most high school movies are more than willing to blow past because it's easier for the storytelling. It's the high school, the kids, and I know I've said this before on the podcast, uh, a really good friend of mine had this theory when we were in college that, you know, the kids who peak in high school are the ones you end up hating because there's nowhere for them to go they never learn how to be people in the real world it's the boiler room you know the aspects of, of it's very high school. true if that yeah. cements you you're done you mean if you if you succeed if you're if you're popular if you're accomplished in or high school if, yeah. you've done you've defined yourself too much as being successful in high school and you've got nowhere to go yeah and they're the ones who never figure out how to work with other people they're mm-hmm. the ones who coast they're the ones who um who bend rules to get what they want, who, because that's how it always worked before, mm. you know, you appeal your grade, you yeah. work out your, your late time, you, you figure out how to manipulate the schedule so you don't have to put in a full day, and that just never stops. Yeah. Those of us who were maybe struggling socially or, or uh, academically are the ones who keep struggling because that's how it works. And you're used to it. Yeah. I you're used so. to always having somewhere to, something to aspire to or some work to do, but... Yeah, and I think that's a rule that holds true. It certainly does for me when I look back at the people who sort of the most successful athlete, the people who had it, like the ones I envied the most and compared myself the most to the most are are 
the ones who haven't done anything all I mean they've had they've I'm sure they've had happy lives but they haven't surprised you know they don't surprise you necessarily with where they go and what they turn into what they accomplish yeah they're the ones with the very predictable Facebook profiles yeah (laughs) for lack of a better term it's just like oh yeah okay I get that That, yeah that's nice (laughs) Uh, and you're right there are people who are who did that and are very very happy I'm sure and it's not a a slam against them but the people who didn't figure out who they were until they were in their 20s are inevitably the ones that i'm you know happier to have a conversation with now because they're still or their 30s or their still, 40s yeah, that's true that's fair <laughs> or their 50s i mean i guess it, yeah some people are um yeah they are who they are i mean i i think about some people who like they're they were happy and content and centered and grounded and knew what they want and what they were capable of back then and that's more or less uh, kind of where they are still. Yeah, like, they're you, steady steady as she goes. Yeah, and if you know what you want and you get it, then what else is there to do? Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I find more often than not, those are the ones who want to have the reunions and want to go back there. Yeah. Uh, because they like that. That's a, That was for them, in no way was high school a nightmare for them. Yeah. Like, there's no cringing for them. Where, for me, it's just, it's pretty, pretty wall-to-wall cringing when I think about high school. Yeah, I also i mean i figured out what i wanted to do and how i wanted to do it you knew you wanted to be a uh, film critic i knew film uh, my grandfather owned a movie theater when i was a kid so i never had another opportunity cool. yeah it was, it was great the orpheum down on uh it's it's a home and craft decor now at bathurst and queen uh, uh, so the marquee the f- is still there so every now and then i wander by and just like bathurst yeah. and queen yeah wow so you're you you're up you grew up in yeah well, a movie North theater Turner, brat yeah basically we sold it when i was Nine or ten? Ten, I guess. 1978. Uh, so I was ten when we sold it. But, you know, yeah, you grow up in the projection booth and it's just... That's amazing. It's an endless garden of delights. So uh, you were, yeah, so you were uh, like uh, ten years, up until ten, sitting in a big theater watching films all the time. It wasn't... I mean, Do you remember it, seeing many things? It felt big. Well, no, that's the thing. Because it's young. The, the irony was that it was a second-run house. Okay. So most of the movies screened were not for kids. So I was protected from the content. I was up, like I would we would visit him in the projection booth or hang out around the popcorn machine. Like the smell of a of a real popcorn popper is totally. It's like an old fashioned story of something. <laughs> yeah, it's my Prostine Madeline. Uh, it's embarrassing, but when I was alive, oh, you're lucky. It was great. Um, we uh, I remember watching the my most my clearest memory of of life. Uh, as in, at the Orpheum, which sounds like a terrible memoir, is uh, I have two. One is. A, jo- a trick about a roll of nickels, mm-hmm. uh, which I learned that if because they were manually operated projectors with two projectors, you know, in sync from reel to reel. Right. Okay. Uh, one projector for one, three, and five. One projector for two, four, and six. So you alternate every twenty minutes, um, and the uh, projectionist would slide a roll of nickels near one of the, the near the center of the reel when winding it back, because that way, even if you fell asleep. The roll of nickels would fall out of the reel as the film unwound and got closer to the end, and, and the sound of it would snap you awake. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah, somebody used it in a book once, and I was like, "Oh yeah, I, I knew that. That absolutely rings true to me." Uh, <laughs> the other one is watching Marcher die through the projection booth window with no dialogue, which is a Gene mm. Hackman French foreign legion film from '76. Mm. I'm guessing. Wow. I have no memory of the plot, but I remember it was the first time that I understood that. Um, your perspective changed based on where you I would have been eight or nine and I was just starting to understand focal length more than anything else but it was one one of my first technical understandings of cinema Mm -hmm. it's like oh okay this shot had to be done from this to make that work and to make it look like this now Mm -hmm. and it's just where you got the where you got the nuts and bolts of how shots are put together kind of yeah and or just how you would gauge something for impact Mm -hmm. um and how you would cut to that well, shot. Well, it's the 70s, too. You've got all those beautiful long-lens films that everybody was making. Yeah. You know? Oh, the grain is burned into my mind, mm-hmm. weirdly enough. Just a shot of Three Camels with deep, deep grain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was probably because the print was really old. And the thing, getting back to election yeah, for a second about the film, you were talking about the craft of, like, Alexander Payne and how, from Citizen Ruth, and he did one other film before election, I can't remember which one it was. Right. But the other thing that strikes me about election is like for me as a filmmaker, it was always like voiceover narration is the enemy. 
and graphics and all of that. For me, it was just fun. try and try and make films like so that you could turn down the sound. You know that thing you hear in film school. If you can sure. turn down the sound and not hear the dialogue and still be able to understand the story, that's what you aspire to. And Election has a grocery list of, of <laughs> sort of easy filmmaking techniques that shouldn't make it like the most perfectly crafted film that it is. It's got voiceover narration. It's got one, montages, several montages, cheesy graphics, yep. lots of really beautiful cheesy graphics. And yet it's, um, I think, like just a, you could bounce a quarter off of it. It's such a well-built film with layers. Yeah. Well, all of its choices are of a piece stylistically, right? It has an aesthetic that makes it all happen, um, The that makes it all palatable. The, mm. the, the pieces work in tandem with one another to present a slightly stylized experience. You know, there's room for anything to happen. And the, it's in right. really... I always forget this because technically it is a 98 film, but it's Rushmore came out right around the same time, mm-hmm. right? Rushmore came out in the spring of 99, but I saw it at TIFF the year before. Okay. And it just, so it's always slightly outside of this window, but they are both about overachievers in high school in America who <laughs> yeah. have, you know, obliterated resistance to anything else, but the conflict and, and both fall into conflict with an older man. Mm-hmm. Um, the difference, of course, in, in Rushmore is that that whole movie is its own... Like, you're seeing Max Fisher's version of his world, mm-hmm. and Election is stepping back and showing you everybody under this microscope. Yeah, and it's... The point of view um, is like, is quite... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Speci- I mean, in... in um, well, it's we're switching all the time in Election, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And we get to see everything from each character's point of view, but also watch listen to them articulate their own deluded illusions about who they think they are yeah and while we're watching the behavior that tells us something different exactly at the same time and that's where the voiceovers were used so brilliantly because it's this counterpoint um where you and and that's the other thing that's great about the film is that we can all identify essentially with the values everybody does aspire to sort of be fighting the good fight and doing the right thing yeah they um, all want to be their best selves. But they're human beings, yeah. and they're a complete train wreck, each and every one. <laughs> yeah, well, that's it. Like, that's what the narration does. It lets them argue with themselves in the moment. Mm. And the movie doesn't... Like, we don't have to do it for them. We don't have to sit back and go, wait a minute, that's not right. We can hear them delusing. Yeah. Deluding them. Delusing? Is that even a word? They are <laughs> well, delusing their own arguments. Be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that, and that's where all the comedy comes from, too. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, the, like the, the definition of comedy is that a character wants something, gets in their own way, and can't have it. Yeah. That's tragedy and comedy, depending on how you play it. <laughs> and the, the way this film executes that is it's got, a, it's got a semblance of the cruelty that Payne brings to some of his other films. But it's so brightly colored and bouncy that it seduces you into believing that it's all funny yeah right like, there it is, is a, very buoyant and bouncy and yeah. um just the color scheme the yellows that tracy uses and all the mm-hmm. the way that she insists on brightening things yeah she's so, got this fake yeah smiley face sort of veneer to her it's like a death rictus that mm-hmm. she fall. that's her reflex she falls back on it and and when she does the thing with her, when when Witherspoon, because it's a performance within the performance yeah. when reese witherspoon does that thing with her jaw and sets it in a way that says you know she's going to be pugnacious now this is her war face yes the colors yeah the conflict with her color scheme is terrifying yeah with plaid kilt yeah uh everything about her is supposed to be innocuous and delicate and and feminine mm -hmm. but in an approachable way it's all well school girlish yeah i mean she's got curls in a in a barrette on the top of her head and um leotards and yeah, because this is a look that worked for her five years ago, and she's yeah. not going to drop it. <laughs> she's a machine. Yeah. You can tell that in the future, she's probably going to be somebody that needs to be managed, like her image as a politician. Yeah. She'll need help with that, like Hillary. Just like Hillary Clinton, Because yeah. her hair, right? Nobody could ever um, approve of Hillary's hair. Right. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. I think that the image that came to me this time watching it was the image of, of Hillary Clinton making cookies in 1992. And just looking like she wanted to murder everybody mm. in that little photo op. Do you remember? No, this? I've never seen that one. It's out there. Uh, it's probably very easily found at this point. Um, I'm sure everything about her is YouTube now. But there was a there's just there was this thing where to soften her image. Right around the same time, she dropped the Hillary Rodham thing and, and embraced the surname. Right. Uh, just after the DNC convention. 
Okay, and she got into trouble when she said, I'm not just some little wife that stands next to my man. Yeah. This was obviously way before. Didn't she also speak. say that I won't stand around baking cookies? Yeah, I'm not going to stand around baking cookies. And that was a, uh, an Perceive, error. Yeah, that was perceived as arrogant. Yeah. Uh, and that was, I think that's when the cookie op happened. But there's just this horrifying image of her smiling daggers somehow while holding mm. a, a tray of chocolate chip cookies. And it's just like, <laughs> this is what death looks like this is what the <laughs> this is what compromise looks like yeah and she was, has to do it and it's yeah. just not her yeah and it's, it's what it took to get bill elected yeah and you know of course she wasn't going to win in 2016 i mean she did win to the popular vote and she probably will i assume we'll find out that she would have won had russians not hacked something mm-hmm. else and I'm, I'm you know i'm sure there's still something else yet to be uh broken about that election but Fox spent 25 years hating this woman and getting all of the right-wing America to hate her. I I have so much admiration for her for Mm -hmm. trying and running anyway. Yeah. Knowing that that's coming for you. She's very strong, and she must have known as well. I mean, it was so telling that night. I I thought... Everybody thought of her, but everybody was in a state of shock. Mm -hmm. But the fact that she didn't appear on television for me was remarkable because you know normally you know they they concede the election they do the phone call thing and then they make a speech to their crowd that's all standing there and she didn't and i thought she's curled up in a ball somewhere (laughs) i haven't read yeah what is it called what happened or yes i haven't read that either um but that's she must have just been like that how can this be happening this isn't happening yeah and uh, I can't, I can't it's like Tracy that. on the night of the election, like crying. Her, we know when her mother tells her, oh, well, maybe you should listen to me about the posters. <laughs> Where um, she just can't believe that this happened. Mm-hmm. It's so completely unfair. And how can a doofus like this win? And how can people be so stupid? And um, yeah, it's the movie that can basically be, you can find uh, every election in every country. You can find, it stands... I think there's something in that film that resembles every aspect of dem- democracy yeah. and uh, what happens in elections. Do you think it's the archetypal nature of it? I mean, is that what... The flaws it? in democracy, you mean, in terms well, of... The, well, the, archety- uh, the archetypal nature of the storytelling more than anything else, the idea that we are watching a bunch of types, the dumb mm. jock, the keener, the closeted, well, the semi-closeted... She's not really closeted. The vengeful teacher, the dumb right. jock, the, the keener. Jealousy, hypocrisy. Yeah. These are primal and basic. Mm. And, and I think yeah, I think that's part of its appeal because we can read anything into it that we want, and mm. so, which is how those reviews can be so different from the take on it now. Yeah. But also, everything, everything you form, every opinion you form while you're watching it is really more about what you're bringing to it yourself rather than what the movie is saying because Payne is trying so hard not to have an opinion. Other than all of these people are flawed. Right. So we get to pick who the hero is. We get to pick who the villain is. And it sort of emerges from our own reading of it. Yeah. And any three people can sit there and come up with a different, a completely different dynamic and a different take of how things are playing out. Yeah, I think so. I think he makes... and Well, I mean, for me, one of the key images in that film in terms of what Alec... I mean, and he does have a lot of really interesting... Uh, Images that the circle is obviously a big one. Like it filmed, it begins with Jim running around a circular track. And then when he's explaining to trying to convince Paul to run, he says, What's your favorite fruit? And he says, uh, Pears, which isn't helpful. And then he says, Apples. <laughs> so he goes, Great, apples. And then he, he draws like three circles on the board. And he says, Now if, if all you get is apples, apples are pretty good, right? But, you know, what if all you ate was apples and you get a little tired of apples sometimes what if an orange came along and then it's a basically it's the exact same shape yeah. and it looks on the board it's just another circle you'd think that the, you know he's trying to illustrate choice and democratic choice between opponents but on the board it's all the same shit yeah. and it's just who's better at pretending that they're different who's better at the sloganeering and everything and that for me I, I mean I, I feel like that's one thing that well maybe the book and everything but that is the sort of ultimate statement I think about what democracy is or what the failings are with it that there's no that it's all kind of a game and it's and all the pieces are exactly the same yeah and whoever wins we lose because nothing really changes <laughs> nothing, nothing really changes like, and it is ultimately that's the other thing it's high school nothing will change the high school government student government is still student government they have no power. they don't really do anything yeah maybe there'll be a different cover on the yearbook maybe they'll do a dance differently 
But ultimately, this all of this is over something so insignificant in the larger scale of life right in the moment. And that Mr. Like Jim McAllister, Mr. M, is going to do all of this damage to himself over something that would be forgotten in a year. Mm. Or at, you know, at worst, 20 years down the road, Tracy Flick will be a congresswoman or she'll be Elle Woods and Legally right. Blonde or whatever else. And He thinks he's stopping her, too. Yeah, he, he thinks he's, he has this ridiculous idea that in his high school universe... Keeping her from winning the student council election is going to somehow stop her. If anything, that's going to propel her further. Yeah, she's a Terminator. She'll yeah. just she'll pull off somebody else's arm and slap it on herself and keep going. And Tammy Metzler said it the best in her speech. Uh, who cares? But she said, "Is you know, is anything going to change? Like, is anybody going to be nicer or happier?" And that's kind of touching. It's like it just sort of shows you that she's the one who actually feels other people. Yeah, and has the most understanding of like how lost it all is or you know where the values really are yeah no she's articulating the things that matter to her and they're the things that matter that should matter to us in the audience yeah who you know are things going to be happier are more people going to be supported are you know it's too but you know that's an actress that uh hasn't uh, she's a former actress that's it she did election she did one other thing after that and that's it really and then she retired God. And I at the tender age of twenty one or something like that. I just I warmed to her on screen just because of this movie. Then yeah, because when she showed up, it's like oh I like her. She's very she's authentic yeah. as a as a human being. She's very funny. She has a lot of the best zingers in the film, and um, she's super good super good actor like really really nuanced. Yeah, I think if pain is on anybody's side, it's Tammy Metzler. Yeah, I don't know that the movie is, but I think he is. Yeah, it's um. Yeah, oh, it's just, it's a, it's a, I'm trying to come up with anything that someone hasn't already said about it, but it really has been, in tw- over 20 years, it's been rehashed and brought up over and over again. Obama said it was his favorite oh, political really? film twice, apparently, according to Payne, according to Criterion, according to Payne. Did he? Yeah, uh, which I can totally see, because yeah. I'm pretty sure Barack Obama tried very hard not to be a Tracy Flick <laughs> yeah. but is yeah because again you know, anybody who has ambition anybody who comes president of the United States has done one thing or another that they had to they, you know stop playing by the rules at some mm-hmm. point yeah but Obama or, also, or whatever be crafty and driven yeah and Obama's the guy who knows like he's got the book in his head yeah. all the time which Tracy also has although I think you get the sense that the way we the way Witherspoon plays Tracy it's yelling at her all the time. The book is always yelling. And with Obama, the book was just there. And with Clinton as well, I think she knew what she needed, when she needed it, would always be available to her. That, that sort of... Hillary Clinton? Yeah, yeah. That sort of attained knowledge that you work for. You know, it's book smarts doesn't really cover it because there's... But they have it. They're animals. They're political animals. Yeah, there's like a it's, cunning they, they, and, and they don't have to think about it. It's probably not as um, learning... Um, and playing by the rules for them, I think it comes naturally because... Well, sorry, wait a second. I'm, I think it's different to say that about Obama. I believe that about Obama. I think Hillary didn't... She's more like Tracy Flick because Hillary doesn't have the natural charisma. Yeah, a lot right. of things probably came... Of course, Obama, uh, you know, the education and the community activism, all these kinds of things that he did were all building blocks that he knowingly... Put to you know, um, accomplished on his way to the presidency, but so many other things you just can't you you can't make happen. They're just it's charisma, yeah. it's your sense of humor, it's the warmth and how people listen to you, or or and how you know, and and she just will never. Hillary will never have that. Yeah, and timing too. I think I think timing is so much a part of it. If if Obama hadn't made that speech in two thousand four, I guess. At the convention, he wouldn't have been a front runner in two thousand eight. It's just, a bit like the Beto O'Rourke, though. He just I want, arrived. Yeah, right? he. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and with Hillary, she's always been there over the years. She in was. A way she that, was so familiar. She was just too familiar and too well, too tainted by everything that had happened over the years. With yeah. and I still believe she would have been like she was the most qualified. She's easily the most qualified person who ran in twenty sixteen. Way but, more qualified, probably the most qualified person to ever run yeah. in terms of her experience. And would have been a wonderful president, of course. Yeah. And here we are in the darkest timeline instead. It's, yeah. It's exhausting. It really is. It is really exhausting. Is. Are you finding yourself feeling a little bit hopeful now that, you no. know, they're starting to talk about 2020? No. 
I'm exhausted uh, because 2016 never ended, right? Like yeah, Trump still is stuck. still campaigning. That was that was the thing George W. Bush did in 2000. That was the thing that Rob Ford did in 2010. You never stop running. You never stop fighting the fight against your last opponent mm. because that reminds your base and keeps them angry. It it's genius campaigning, but it's terrible for governance because mm. you you're so busy being angry and reacting that you don't actually do anything. Yeah, and yeah. two years in. I'm, you know, Trump is still talking about the Electoral College, like it matters, and, and shutting down the government out of spite, and no, I would be very happy if there's an election in 2020, but at this point I have no idea what's coming next. Like, mm-hmm. everything is worse all the time. It's um, also not hopeful that there are so many Democratic candidates that you're talking about. Yeah. That can't be good. Well, they're flooding the they're flooding the conversation now, and, and making sure, it's a, what is it? It's, we're recording this before presumably the State of the Union happens. I'm still not sure that's coming through, but we're recording this in mid-January 2019. The election isn't until November 2020. And they're, yeah, they're already starting. Mm-hmm. I mean, you remember what 2015 was like, that yeah. endless rounds of debates and yeah. all the yammering. And, you know, Bernie Sanders won't go away, so that's going to be dealt with again. We yeah. relitigated all over again. I, yeah, I feel nothing but yeah, it's tired. it is exa- I think tired is probably the best thing because it's it's we've been it's not like we've been able to forget about it for a while. It's been yeah, a, yeah. you know it's fresh hell there. every damn day, um, and mm. everybody's just waiting for Mueller to get funky with it. Like, it's not going to change anything. <laughs> yeah, I remember Nixon, I, they keep saying Watergate. Nixon, also Watergate, hopeful, Nixon. Nixon resigned out of decency. Yeah, but that, that's not going to happen. That's not Trump. Yeah. No, he he's and you know I think if Rob Ford hadn't gotten sick, he would have clung on as long as possible too. They there there is this thing about entitlement now that if there's something they have, they're never going to let it go. And completely without shame. Like yeah. There's no. You can't shame someone out of office. You can't you can't legislate someone out of office. Mm-hmm. The I honestly figured Mike Pence would have poisoned him by now, but that never happened. Um, and the, the 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 comforting thing about Election, the movie, is that it's high school and everything is over in a year. Yeah. None of this goes on forever. Um, and, and, of course, it's a, new, a cinematic narrative, so you mm. have a beginning, middle, and end. And it's comforting, even if it ends with... People get punished in an election yeah. in that film, though. There's comeuppance. Yeah. Even if it ends with people... There's consequences. ...driving off to Congress or wherever. Yeah. Uh, and Tracy's bold, bright future. Yeah. There's still a sense that some balance is attained. Uh-huh. And the world doesn't give you that, which is why movies are the greatest comfort I can imagine. Because they like, tie things up in yeah. a little bow, or they, like, at least they show you, the con- they show you where... Uh, things head in the directions that they're supposed to yeah. um, as consequences for whatever anybody else what you've done throughout the film to deserve your fate yeah and the credits roll and that tells you your heart rate can return to normal <laughs> that we don't have that in the world um, I mean, you, spent, so. you spent years just to transition into, into what Walla wants you spent years making this movie with no idea where it was going to go um, I did, knew that it that... was I knew that it was going to I what guided me while I was making it is that it was going to go one way or the other. Right. So she was either going to make it or not make it. My biggest fear is that the way I thought the film was going to end, I felt was very potentially quite dangerous because I thought, okay, I'm betting that she's going to make it through police college and she's going to be a policewoman at the end of this, and that's great. Yeah. But the problem is I've put a camera where I've put a camera, and it's not enough to tie a sweet little bow on, okay, she's a cop now, isn't that fantastic? She's a policewoman in the West Bank, and um, the story begins when her mother gets out of prison. So I knew that where she lives and the political context of where she lives and what her mother did and how all of that violence surrounding Walla needed to be addressed in a way that uh, gets deeper um, and registers on a deeper level with her. Um, And so, not that I made it happen, but what happens in the third act and when she ends up, um, you know, in prison, um, that's the thing where I thought, okay, now we're finally getting to the point where we are answering the bigger questions that are posed at the beginning of the film. So it is totally terrifying, for sure. Well, in terms of what's the... How am I going to end this? That's the scary thing about documentary filmmaking. And the way I make them, which is following a character I like to make. I like to, you know, I do like to... Use narrative the narrative conventions that we expect in feature films. A char- you know, a, a character who wants something, who encounters obstacles along the way, and I I like taking that very classic um, structure 
and following character long enough to sort of um, follow through on a storyline like that. And yeah, it was very, very um, worrisome <laughs> because it's like you all, it's okay to make a film like that. It, 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 you know, I, I've never been there. I, you know, I'm not Palestinian. I'm not Israeli. I'm not Jewish. I'm not Muslim. Like I have no skin in the game okay. except that I'm a young, I'm a woman <laughs> and a young woman. Yes. As we discussed earlier, that c- cares about other young people who have goals and want to do things. So that was really the one reason I was making it. It's like, this is a kid who's actually innocent of everything who wants to, um, accomplish a goal. And so mm. I'm going to follow her, but you can tell that story anywhere, but there, um, without getting into the deeper, uh, force the, the, the deeper context and the other things that sort of well, influence, pressure her in the environment that she lives. Yeah, there's so much around her before, I mean, before she sets foot on the path that she wants to take. Yeah. She's coming out of, what, 17 years when she starts? Yeah, she's around 50, she's just about to turn 16 when I met her. 16, okay. Yeah, and her mother had just been released from prison. And she lived in Balada Camp. So she kind of had this, you know, she was already in a state of, in a bit of a, um, in a state of transition because she's getting used to being a family again. She hasn't had a mother for eight years. Mm-hmm. And she's been living in Balada Camp where, you know, every other neighbor has been prison for one thing or another. Um, because it's a, where a lot of the resistance to the occupation is um, in the West Bank anyway. This is quite different from Gaza. Yeah. And so... Um, her mother was very, very politicized, and this is sort of just everything that she's surrounded by. Um, you know, Yasser Arafat on the television, just for a young kid who's 15, that's sort of what, what they're hearing. And um, she kind of just barely squeaked through high school. So the fact that she had this goal, this very tangible goal, was really interesting. Um, and so it was something, it was obviously something to follow, but because there was this alternate fate, that was unspoken, but there all right. the time. That somebody with as much vim as she has, and this is a kid with a chip on her shoulder, and she's um, strong and very charismatic, but also just a fighter, um, used to having her fists up. You think, if she doesn't go down this constructive, productive path, then is she going to end up in... Is she going to be taking a different path? Yeah, where where else could that energy be uh, yeah, directed to? Yeah, and, and very understandable anger and frustration. So what is she going to do with it, and how is it going to get... You know, how is that going to get channeled in a, into a positive way? So there were lots of really intriguing questions that sort of fueled the shooting of it, um, and that I knew there were eventually going to be answers. So that's sort of what kept me going, but it's still... You're still terrified that you're going to make something that promises something that it doesn't deliver. Yeah, I mean, it's a leap of faith to start anything, but... I have no idea what I'm thinking. Whenever I finish a film, I'm like, what the hell did I think I was doing? I got so lucky when this happened, this happened, this happened. Um, or that's a horrible, that's a very crazy thing to say as a documentarian, because you do feel like a, do- uh, like a vampire who goes in, and sometimes the story is good, and you can tell a bigger story that promotes more compassion and empathy, but it's because something really horrible happens to this real person in real life that you've documented, yeah, which has happened um, in, or awful or life-changing, not necessarily awful, but in all the films that I've made, it's like always hinged on these crazily huge things that happen to the people eventually, like Mary, the main character, Bastard, dies in the film, so that's sort of like a, you do feel like, okay, well, we're bringing, I'm bringing a lot of people, a lot of people fall in love with Mary because of the film, but it still feels uh, like you have an odd relationship to the lives that you're documenting, but that's part of the fun. I'm sure, yeah. Well, and, and so this makes the closing question of the podcast a little bit awkward, uh, not awkward, but complicated. Is there anything of election that you used in your own work? Is, have you found a way? Absolutely. Unabashedly, really? yeah. I made a short film, which was a, a kind of a low-calorie political satire called Dual Citizen. And uh, it has, it, it was very much like, um, it was my second short film. It shot it on 35, and it was a comedy. Huh. And it sort of plays like a King of the Hill episode. And it's about, it was based, it was inspired by my Uncle Bob, who is a snowbird, okay. who goes down to Florida. And he lives on one of those, like, a gated community, like a retirement community in Florida. And he um, had his Canadian flag up on Canada Day. And his American neighbor asked him to take it down because I don't, you know, we don't like to see American uh, foreign flags on American soil. 
And so he just complained about that. And my uncle Bob himself is like a really uh, interesting character. So I wrote a short film called Dual Citizen about a Canadian who gets into a huge uh, pissing contest with his American neighbor. And it, uh, what happens is the American tells him, like, they're buddies, and the Canadian is, um, and his wife have decided to have a July 4th party for their new neighbors to, you know, have an American big party for July 4th. Right. Kind of have it be a Canada Day celebration at the same time, but nobody else around them really knows about Canada Day or cares about Canada Day. So he passively, like, he, he gets told to take the flag down. The American neighbor says, you know, people are a little sensitive about that. Um, and he's oh sure okay I'll take it down and uh, then passive aggressively he refuses to take it down he goes to take it down then he goes no I'm going to leave this up but what he doesn't realize is that his wife like it's tattered it's old it was on the boathouse so she takes it down to repair it and he assumes that the American takes it so then July 4th he goes over the he goes over the Americans and it all escalates and he decides he's going to remove the Americans American flag on July 4th Anyways, and hilarity ensues. <laughs> and that has very, like, it has, I looked to election to see how um, the, well, the, the tone is similar, I guess. And just the, um, ha- the interior of the characters, their motivations versus what they say, I think is where I took a lot of guidance from election if you you can definitely kind of see how and how the satire is handled i suppose right that misguided pettiness yeah pettiness and yeah and how to handle that tonally like and how to you know how how the pacing of the scenes um was uh so he was very he was much and a little bit with cheer up as well because cheer up was about i don't know if you heard of that film that's the feature i did before walla and that is about uh a cheerleading coach um, in the Arctic Circle in Finland, yes. and she's the coach of the world's worst, um, or well, actually, they are arguably the world's worst cheerleading team. But Finland's like always last place competitive cheerleading team, and she decides to go to Dallas, Texas, to learn from the world's best. And for the longest time, I had a very election like like what what the characters said. Um, Mia would say things like, "I love the USA. I love." The, you know, I love the TV shows, I love the movies, I love the music, I love the people. Well, I don't know, I haven't really met any of the people, so I'm not sure if I like the people. So we had, I had this really amazing voiceover from all of the different characters that worked in the same kind of counterpoint with what they actually, how they behaved. But when you're doing that with real people, then you get into some other thing, and it actually... In every other regard, cinematically, it was shot in a way where we could cut a story together without anybody talking to us. There were no interviews or anything else, except for one interview that we did stick with when Patricia tells us that her mother dies. Um, So we decided to ditch that. It was one of those kill your darlings thing, where it turned the tone of the film in a far more somber direction. But it made sense for a lot of reasons in terms of getting people involved in the story. Um... And it was a tough decision, but it definitely had a lot of like it was it was that uh, Alexander Payne kind of. So he's been a he was a formative uh, influence on me for sure. Yes. Have you? Um, how have you felt about his subsequent films? Do you have? Do you feel strongly towards? Them? I liked Nebraska. I can't talk with too much about. I've only seen it once. It was a, again. I I hear what you're saying when you say he's gotten darker and slightly more misanthropic. Yeah, I like Nebraska. But it is pretty much... Uh, it's pretty clear about who it likes and who it doesn't. Yeah. Um, I won't see... Uh, Sideways is great. I, yeah, you know, Sideways is fun. Never, and The Descendants. I'm a big fan of The Descendants. Uh, and then Downsizing, which was just... Downsizing, I, I couldn't connect with. Don't know why it's there. Yeah. I, I kind of see his interests in there somewhere, and I understand the attraction to the project, but I think what what he's made is... It's just not much of anything, really. I think the great thing about him, though, regardless, is that he does make these films that sometimes you go, eh, because that's an interesting filmmaker. He's not doing the same thing over and over again. And he takes, you know, he just, everything is its own. Sometimes they're not that easy to unpack. Yeah, that's fair. Which is not an easy thing to do nowadays to get a film like like his films financed. Um, And they're kind of puzzles sometimes, or they're complicated, or they're not as easy to know who you should be rooting for. Yeah. And um, not everything ends up the way most every other movie tells you it should end up, which is the kind of film I love. 
That's true. And I think the failure of downsizing to set the box office on fire, because it was a really expensive gambit, is probably going to make him regroup and do something smaller, more intimate, and probably more successful. Next. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder if he'll do a series. No, that's a television series I'd, I'd watch. I mean, that's true. It's, he I seems forgetting there's the option. He's kind there. of been making, con- he's been making films about concepts that could be easily, I mean, he, middle America, and the, oh, yeah. like American life, and, um, you know, society, and politics, and everything, he'd be... Yeah, I mean, God. He's like the election could be a twelve-part series at this point. Yeah, Armando um, Iannucci. Yeah, yeah. He's oh, similar. The Death of Stalin is such a good movie. It's quite as good. a feature, yeah. locked in. <laughs> I, yeah, I would be curious to see him expand outward, mm. just as long as it's something new. We don't need, uh, you know, a, a remake of anything. Let's no. just let's blaze a new trail and see yeah. what happens. My thanks to Christy Garland whose documentary What Will I Want screens this Wednesday, February 20th at 6.30pm at the Hot Docs Ted Rogers Cinema in Toronto and then begins a theatrical run at the Tiff Bell Lightbox on March 1st. Thanks also to Jennifer Mayer. She knows what she did. You can find Christy on Twitter at Christy Garland, all one word, and you can find Election on Blu-ray and DVD in a very nice special edition from the Criterion Collection. It's also available on iTunes and Google Play, and in April it'll almost certainly be included on the Criterion channel. Also, if you're in Toronto, you can see it in a theater. It's screening at the Royal on Wednesday, March 6th, as part of Angela Moreta's No Future series. I guarantee you that'll be worth checking out as well. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at nowtoronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. If you feel like leaving a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever you enjoy the show, that would be greatly appreciated. Every little bit helps. It truly does. Thanks for your support. And thanks for listening. I'm afraid you're just too darn loud.